I'd like to speak to you about the wedding at Canaan. If you love wedding stories, this is one of the finest that uh, you can read in Scripture. Wonderful, wonderful. So please open your Bible with me to the Gospel of John as we continue to go through John's Gospel. Chapter 2. This is hard. John chapter 2. We come to a section of John's Gospel now that stretches all the way to John chapter 12. It's a long stretch, isn't it? But uh, there's a lot here. And this section is actually called the Book of Signs. The Book of Signs where John focuses on the revelation of Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. So the Apostle John wants us to see the glory of Jesus, the glory of Jesus in these chapters. And uh, through them, to place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. In fact, that's the very purpose of the whole book, isn't it? We know that Jesus is revealed and the Apostle John is writing this so that we may believe. That's the purpose of of the evangelist. Actually, in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, it says this, Now Jesus did many other signs, many other signs, in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Isn't that amazing? Many, many other signs and wonders and miracles He did that's not even written. But He says this, but these are written so that you may believe. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So really the whole point is to give you and I reasons to believe in Jesus. He gives us the reasons. So that so what the Apostle John, and, and as I mentioned earlier, he's an evangelist as well. He's not only an apostle, but he's an evangelist. By the inspiration of the Spirit of God, and the coming pages is how Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament Scriptures. And how Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and who is the answer to God's promises that God, that everything that God said throughout the Old Testament revelation. So John wants us to see how wonderful Jesus is. Every page is all about Christ and His glory. Every page. Every line. He wants us to see how capable Jesus is. How worthy Jesus is. How loving and good and kind and patient and precious and mighty and glorious Jesus is. And to believe in who Jesus is with all of our heart. 
So in saying that, let's read uh, chapter 2. And I'd like to begin, of course, with verse 1 and read it to verse 12. Hear the word of the living God. Hear the word of the living God. In the third day there was a wedding in Canaan of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And now both Jesus and His disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to Him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of the purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. And Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now, and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, he did not know where it came from. But the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. And this beginning of signs Jesus did in Canaan of Galilee and manifested His glory. And His disciples believed in Him. And after this He went down to Capernaum. He, His mother, His brothers, and His disciples And they did not stay there many days. Let's please uh, bow with me in prayer as we seek our Lord's face uh, within this hour of worship and ask of His help. Our Father and our great God, how merciful, how holy, how loving You are. Lord, we pray... And I pray today that as we hear Your Word preached, Lord, that Your blessed Holy Spirit would lead and guide us into all truth. Always lifting Christ up. Always pointing us to Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that help us us in understanding these great truths. Enable us, Lord, to understand and do whatever Jesus has commanded us in the Bible. And by this we show her her love to you. Lord, I pray that Jesus would change us. Continually change us. So transform us, Lord. Make us into a new creation that the change can be compared to the changing of the water into wine. Lord, we pray this in the name that is above every name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for Your honor and glory. Amen. 
Well, to get the most out of these uh, 12 verses from John chapter 2, these first 12 verses, I decided to break this up, this message, into two parts. And I believe that's wise because there's a lot here, a lot more than we think that's really here within this wonderful story. So I want to break it up into, actually today, um, by God's help, we're going to look at verse 1 to verse uh, 5. And uh, then the rest, actually to verse 6 and to 11, we will catch next Lord's Day as He wills. So I got an outline here, a simple outline that we will look at. And the following is this. First, in verse 1, we will look at the event. The event in verse 1. Second, we will look in verse 2, the characters. The characters. Third, in verses 3 to 5, we will look at the problem. The problem. Then, Lord willing, next week we will look at the fourth and fifth, those two points there, which take up a little more uh, portion of Scripture, but in verses 6 to 8, we will look at the resolution, the resolution, and then final, the fifth, in verses 9 to 11, the response, the response. So you have the event, the characters, the problem, and the resolution. And then the response. The event, the characters, the problem, the resolution, and the response. Now we find ourselves actually peeking into a, um, a little slice of history in this wonderful chapter 2. In verses 1 through 12. We see a young couple that's getting married. A wonderful act of common grace, isn't it? A common grace that's gifted to all people. Yet on another level, our Lord Jesus is invited along with His disciples at this point in His ministry. We will behold our Lord Jesus who is present at this wedding as He transforms it into a revelation of God's glory. Jesus makes all the difference in the world, doesn't He? When He shows up. And beloved, that's the difference that our Lord Jesus makes. He turns weddings into foretastes of heaven. He turns bad news into good news. He turns water into wine and He turns the law of the Old Testament into grace of the New Testament. He actually turns the ceremonial jars into vats of uh, wine that they have to celebrate. With Mary, Mary hearts. Why? Because our Lord is always having a goal and a purpose in everything that He does. His goals and His purposes is, is all about the glory of God. He does this because He's thinking about something much, much bigger than we see actually in, at the little wedding of Canaan and Galilee. Namely, God's glory. God's glory. And this is actually what is manifested here. Because you see in verse 11, this is the beginning of signs Jesus did in Canaan of Galilee and manifested 
what? His glory. His glory. And because of that, His disciples believed in Him. That's actually, this is what drew them in when Jesus manifested His glory. So He does this because He's... That is His focus. That is His focus. That is His goal. Is the glory of God. So on the third day, uh, we see a wedding. So this is our first point. The first point is verse 1. We will look at the event. The event. So what is the event? What is the event? Verse 1 says, On the third day, there was a wedding at Canaan of Galilee. In Galilee. The Apostle John gives us actually the time and the place, doesn't he? He did this throughout chapter 1 as well as we just traveled through. Chapter 1, verse 19, the chronology actually began. If we take that chronology and look at it, the Jews came to John the Baptist in verse 19, asking him about his baptism. Then if you notice... The next day, in chapter 1, verse 29, John proclaimed Jesus as the Lamb of God, John the Baptist. Then it says, actually on the third day, in chapter 1, verse 39, Jesus took His new disciples home. Actually, at that time, I believe there was only two. Then on the fourth day, in chapter 1, verse 43, Jesus met Nathaniel. Now here in chapter 2, verse 1, John is uh, speaking of the third day. And he means it's the third day after his encounter with Nathaniel. So actually, it comes to the seventh day. Interesting, isn't it? The seventh day since John started recounting Jesus' acts. So the text says on the third day there was a wedding in Canaan, Galilee. So... Let's look at it. There's a full week here. Seven days. Uh, Seven days of activity has been completed. And it's interesting, as I was reading this, uh, one commentator says it like this, and I kind of want to put it in my words, but um, this is actually what one commentator said on this uh, particular uh, event in seven days. If no information is given regarding the sixth day, which because the sixth day is the Jewish Sabbath. Uh, The Canaan wedding, or at least the day on which Jesus and his friends joined the wedding party, would have fallen on Sunday. So the Sabbath was their day of rest. So here the wedding actually could be right on that Sunday after the full week. So this may not have been the first day of the wedding because weddings in those days lasted for a whole week and sometimes more. It was a big, big event. You can read this according to Judges chapter 14 verse 12. The weddings is not like uh, we do here in the West. It's just one day. We're talking about here a, a full week and even more so. So it is unlikely that the wine ran out immediately. 
So it kind of gives us a little background here because weddings were a big, big deal. So the wedding was in Canaan of Galilee, and that's the, pretty much the location. And we have already, I've already mentioned this, but the home, this is the hometown of Nathaniel, Canaan. Jewish weddings were very, very important and joyful occasions in the lives of the bride and the groom and their extended families and the entire community joined into that celebration. And like I said, it's a big, big deal. A lot of cost goes into it from the, from the groom. Uh, Canaan, uh, again, is the home place of Nathaniel, and it was not far from Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, and actually, in location geographically, it's only 10 miles away. So the location for Mary, Jesus, uh, was not far. So that pretty much tells us, in short, uh, about the event. Let's look at the second point. second point is, speaks of the characters, the characters. Verse 2, Now both Jesus and His disciples were invited to the wedding. It's interesting here to note that the fact that the guest list here included Jesus and His disciples as well as his mother. His mother may indicate the wedding uh, of a close family friend or a relative. Now, why do I say that? I say that because this may explain to us why Jesus' mother felt responsible to go to Jesus and to to help and... um, Especially when the wine ran out. <laughs> uh, she felt very responsible, didn't she? So she felt responsible in probably orchestrating and organizing the wedding. So she probably had a lot to do in helping within this wedding. To help when the host had run out of wine. And of course, we'll see in a minute her going to the Lord Jesus Christ about this problem. Now, look at the verses, especially in verse 1, the latter part of verse 1. You might have thought I I skipped that, but I didn't. I saved it to this moment. Note the order in which the evangelists list those invited to the wedding. You know, God's order is always right on. And there's a reason why John the uh, Apostle gives this order of the characters in the way he does. The mother of Jesus is mentioned first. Alright? Well, there's a reason why she's mentioned first. Though, he doesn't call her out by name. But we know it's Mary. Right? Then Jesus, then Jesus and his disciples. Again, let's ask the question, why? Why? I believe it's significant here because because we believe God ordained this as a... um, a moment in time, but do we believe that this is a sacrament for us to, uh, as the Catholics would say, that we are to go to Mary first, since she's here named first, and that Mary can, as we will see later, uh, she's the one that mediates and goes to Jesus, as the Catholics uh, look at? God forbid. God forbid. That's taking this whole story out of context of the character of the mother of Jesus just because she is placed first here. 
So that would be wrong. Actually, the reason is given and is found in the verses before us. And as we read the story carefully, Mary may have been a friend of the family that's helping behind the scenes in this wedding of Canaan. And by the way, let me say this. Uh, Mary did no miracle here. Uh, I, wish, I wish there was some Catholic friends here among us. There, Mary is really not what this wedding is about. It's, it really comes to the point of Jesus Christ. Christ. And He transforms it. And uh, Mary did no miracle. And he could, she couldn't do a miracle. It was the Lord Jesus Christ that performed the miracle. And what's even more important than the fact that our Lord Jesus did the first miracle here. And there's a reason why He chooses in God's sovereign plan as Christ walked this earth to perform His first miracle at a wedding. Because it emphasizes the sanctity of a holy covenant between one man and one woman that God Himself instituted. So important, isn't it? And after all, it was God. If you look in Genesis, it was God's idea of a wedding, of a marriage, of an institution between one man and one woman. So, that is so important, isn't it? Public covenant matters. Covenant relationship matters. God is a covenant-keeping God. People are not married who just live together. People are married who make public confessions, a public covenant before God and before people because it was God's idea and not man's idea. Don't you love that? Now, I got a good quote by Pastor John MacArthur, and you know I'm going to insert him here because he says it's so wonderful. And uh, stay with me on this. I got this one quote. This is probably the, the, the biggest quote I have, and then we're going to move and make some tracks on this story. But listen to what John MacArthur says about marriage. I love this, and I had to just pass this on to you because he says it really wonderful. He says this, quote, Marriage is a condition of life designed by God ordained by God, and authenticated in an open public covenant. It is the highest and noblest and best of all human relationships. No other human relationship is as wonderful as marriage. It is called in the Bible the grace of life. The grace of life. It is the most wonderful and most blessed of all common graces. And we talk about common grace... And what we mean by that is is a grace gift from God to all people without regard to whether they believe in Him. That's a common grace. And of all the common graces, the beauty of the world, a sunset, sleep, health, a good meal, the epitome of common graces is marriage. Marriage. It is the best gift that God can give to humanity in general without regard to whether they know Him at all. He goes on to say this, Any society that elevates marriage, a lifelong commitment openly 
a covenant made and kept between a man and a woman who rear children in the bond of that love, any society that honors marriage will be blessed temporarily. It will prosper, it will be safe, it will be secure, it will know peace, and it will have a minimum of crime. On the other hand, on the other hand, he says, any society that fails to honor marriage as a covenant, open covenant between man and woman and a woman for life, in which children are reared and cared for, any society that diminishes marriage, that fails to honor marriage, is corrupt, is doomed to chaos, turmoil, evil, and judgment. That's where we are, folks. Listen to this. Where marriage for life is not honored, where the covenant vows between a man and a woman are not kept, Immorality abounds. Immorality overruns the culture. The fabric of society is shredded and even escalates. Our Lord honored marriage by attending and doing His first miracle at a wedding. End quote. I thought that was worth passing to you because it's so important because especially where we are as a nation, we see Satan has did has got the crosshairs right in the home at, at the fathers and the mothers, the children. And if he could tear that apart, he has tore down the foundation on which God has instituted. Oh, how we need to hear that and how we need to come back to that holy covenant that God instituted. Well, let me get to the third point. We see the problem, the problem. Look at verse 3 to 5 with me. We'll break this down. Let's verse 3, let's tackle that first, a portion of that. We see a problem arises. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. They have no wine. Now, again, as I've already said, this was really a big, big deal at a wedding. The groom was charged with providing everything for a wedding in those days, in ancient times in the East. And actually charged with providing enough wine for the wedding party, which lasted about a week. And it was as if the wedding planner came to you at your reception in our day in the West. And now can you imagine this happening at a wedding? Well... We made it halfway through and provided what we could for most of the guests. But all the food's gone now. Could you imagine how people would react? There's no more food. Now, you would have some disappointed guests, wouldn't you? As a matter of fact, you would have some very mad guests, upset, invited to a wedding, and then you ran out of food? You know people get pretty chaotic if they, <laughs> they run out of food. Well, it not only brings embarrassment, but this was just uh, more than embarrassment to this young couple here at the wedding of Cana. And matter of fact, in those days, this was grounds for a lawsuit. This was, and actually, they could sue from from the wedding uh, from the wedding guests. They could sue the the groom. 
And actually, take it a little step further, it was a big deal in the, in the sense that here they are entering into this covenant relationship, a new life together, and all that was threatened. It could ruin them. Instead of entering in that covenant relationship together with joy and merriness and happiness, they might now enter into it with a great burden upon them, knowing that this disaster happened. So I'm trying to bring us in, into this story of what is actually taking place here when the wine ran out. It was serious. There was a catastrophe. It was chaos. So Mary did not come to Jesus with the, a minor inconvenience here. Matter of fact, she came with a serious crisis to the Lord. And she goes to the right person. We're going to say more. I want to say more about that in just a minute. But I do want to make a footnote here about the wine. Interesting. I've had so many people in my walk with the Lord, especially among Christian circles. Now, I don't want to chase a rabbit, but I want to give a footnote. This is where they always go to justify drinking. I want to say this about the wine here. Very, very kind of nutshelled together just a few comments because you can actually make a whole sermon on this in those days in ancient times in the eastern world especially in the hot climate that they lived in wine was served that was served was subject to fermentation it was subject to fermentation actually in the ancient world however to quench the thirst without inducing drunkenness the wine was diluted with the water. With the water to between one-third and one-tenth of its strength. Why? I'll tell you why. Due to the climate, again as I said, hot weather, the circumstances, even the new wine fermented very quickly. So, it's because... And it's still in, in parts of that world today. There's a problem with the water being very contaminated and polluted, very filthy, and very dirty. The water had, did not have a purification process like we have today to purify the water and to take the contamination out of it. So wine mixed with water was safer to drink than water alone. And that because the water was very unclean. That's the reason why. But yet, so many people I know want, want to, to go here and say, yeah, Jesus turned the water into wine so they can get drunk and have a merry time and all this. You know something? They missed the whole point of what Jesus is talking about, about wine. And we're going to see this. Yes, there's wine. Actually, um, and the Bible does condemn drunkenness. It does not necessarily condemn the consumption of wine. There are verses of Scripture in Psalm 104.15, Proverbs 21. Uh, wine makes a merry heart. But I challenge anybody to, to this point. There's more Scriptures that speak against that than for it. Now, 
to those that are in Christian circles who go to this text to justify drinking alcohol, again, has really missed the whole point of this wonderful miracle. I do want to say this, one more note about the drinking of wine. I always, in my personal opinion, tell people, yes, even though the Scriptures do not condemn drinking wine, those little things can lead to addiction where a person cannot turn it loose. You got a chapter and verse of that? Absolutely. Just go to Genesis and look at Noah. He was a man, a man of God and a preacher of righteousness and he grew a vineyard. And you know the story. He eventually became drunk, right? So it can lead to drunkenness. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you a quick story on this. Again, I don't want to chase a rabbit. i got more, more to say. But I was, when I worked in Kmart one time, there was this particular man I knew that was head. He was like a bishop over all the pastors in Floyd County. And I saw him in, in Super Kmart. I don't even know his name, but I know who he was. He was actually like the superintendent over all these pastors. They called him a bishop, but actually he was supposedly an example. And um, I had a guy with me that was a retired pastor in the, uh, in the southern, from the Southern Baptist movement. And he was a godly man. He was up in his uh, close to 80 years old still working, and he, he happened to see the same, the same guy as we were talking because he was a cart pusher. And here comes this superintendent, and he's got a big shopping cart, and he, lo- and he loads up his shopping cart with Budweiser's. Alcohol. And I said, Ernie? You see that? I said, you know who that guy is, don't you? And I, you were the Southern Baptist pastor. He said, I know who he is. He's, he's, a, he's the head man of the whole Southern um, Baptist pastors, the whole, the whole kit and caboodle. And, and here he is buying all this alcohol. And we, he agreed with me. <laughs> I said, Ernie, don't you think this man might need to be warned? I said, uh, Actually, you're more qualified. We started debating who's going to go up to him and approach this guy and tell him what he's doing is not a very good testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ. Ernie said, oh, no problem, I'll do it. <laughs> he went right up to the guy and I saw him talking to him. And that man just split away from Ernie real quick. Ernie got his point across and we were talking about Noah, how and many other scriptures that actually can lead to abuse of drinking alcohol. Anyway, to make a long story short, that was one situation that kind of stands out in my mind, but there's many, many others that has always gone to this text to try to justify, justify drinking. Sad, isn't it? We shouldn't be looking to go to the Bible to, ju- to justify anything that would, God would be opposed to. It has to be taken in moderation, right? And that's a whole sermon in itself, and I don't want to go there and chase that rabbit, but let's put the rabbit in the cage. Let's go to the next point. Well, she actually comes, Mary, comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. They ran out of wine. The mother of Jesus says to him, they have no wine. They have no wine. It's a serious crisis, isn't it? Mary goes to Jesus when the crisis comes. Now, we have to commend Mary here. At least she knew who, to, who she knew to go to. She, she knew 
that the Lord Jesus Christ would be caring about this. There's nothing to drink. There's no wine. They are out. She goes to the right person. There's an important transition that's going about to take place in this verse. Some have suggested that Mary wanted the Lord to do a miracle. But actually, let me ask the question here. Why would she all of a sudden want Him to do a miracle? He had never done a miracle before. But He was about to embark on His public ministry. He was gathering to Himself disciples. We know this. And this was all new. He had left home. Now, He's out in the public. This is actually, you see... His public ministry he's embarking on. And Jesus has already come through the wilderness. He had gone through the temptation. He won that victory. John the Baptist proclaimed Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now the word at that time, I'm sure, had been circulating in a little town like Canaan. And we know in in Nazareth because they actually ousted him out. And, and, and here at a little meeting at this wedding in Canaan, a small town, and I'm sure Jesus was the talk of the town. A lot of gossip was going on about, who is this Jesus of Nazareth? So there's something more obvious than that, and i like to, for you to think of this. Whenever Mary had a problem, and I kind of got this from Pastor John MacArthur because his notes on this is really goes, and he really goes into detail on this, but I don't have time for all the details. But to paraphrase it in my words, who do you think she would go to for a solution when she was raising him and rearing him in the home? Go to him. We know that she must have known that he was a special child from God because she did not know a man. His supernatural birth incarnated. And yet she goes to the perfect man. She goes to the one that never had a wrong solution. Everything that he says was absolutely right. And Jesus would always direct her in the right location and never with the wrong answer. He always had the perfect answer because he's the perfect man, right? Beloved Jesus always has that right solution for us. Every situation, any crisis, every crisis that you and I are in, every dilemma, every problem, Jesus is the answer. Not only has the answer, He is the answer. So we can go to Him. So let's commend Mary here. She at least goes to Jesus. At least she knew who to go to. And you know she knew he cared. He cared deeply. He cared deeply about people in the situation. Wearsby said that he wasn't like John the Baptist, like a recluse. Jesus went to public um, events, and a wedding was one of the very first one he, uh, events that he goes to, and he sees it very important. So Mary simply just says to him, they have no wine. They have no wine. Look at verse 4. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, folks, this is really very important. A very important verse. 
There's a transition that's taking place here. Jesus says to her, woman, woman. Now, in our culture, we think almost immediately he's being harsh, he's being rude, but he's not being harsh and rude. Actually, it's, you, would, you would actually put it like this in the southern terms and southern expression. It's like he's saying, ma'am, ma'am, or dear woman. But notice he does not say mother. This is very important. Yet he's courteous. He's he's not disrespectful because actually, how could he be? He honors his mother in every way. He keeps the law perfectly. He fulfills the law, right? So he honors his mother on earth. And by the way, it's, it's the same word here that, that's used as Jesus died on the cross. It's interesting that here we see this at the beginning of his ministry. He uses the woman, uh, the, the word woman at the beginning of his ministry. And as he is dying in John chapter 19, as he's hanging on a cross, a Roman cross, he says, woman, behold your son. Behold your son. Think of that. He... He actually, at that time, is handing over to John the care for her, to take care of his mother. Isn't that amazing? Even on the cross, he's not thinking of himself. He's thinking of his mother. And honoring, talking about honoring your mother. But he doesn't say mother, even on the cross. That's very important, folks. He says, woman, woman. Ma'am. And here in the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry, from this point to the cross, he's actually telling her, in effect, we do not any longer have that same relationship that we've had up until this point. The relationship is changing. It's over. And there's a reason for that. We've got to realize who Jesus is. Jesus is the Son of the living God. He is God in flesh. She is no longer in a position to act as any authority in His life. (laughs) Wow. She, She is no longer in a position to tell Him Something. And, and yet, the reply Jesus gives to her is in question form. Woman, ma'am, what does it concern you? A concern, what does your concern have to do with me? One translation puts it this way What do you and I have in common as far as the matter at hand is concerned? That's interesting, isn't it? The imp- implication here is nothing. Absolutely nothing. So the expression occurs elsewhere in the Gospels. And by the way, this is, <clears throat> this is interesting. Exclusively on the lips of demons who strongly oppose Jesus. What have I had to do with you? Son of the living God. They knew who Jesus was. Also when Jesus was 12 years old, you remember the story. We have a small window. And whatever reason, it only chooses to give us a small window in the life of Jesus while he was a young man growing up, 12 years old. 
He gave her a preview. He gave Mary a preview of this moment. And he was in the temple talking to the uh, officials. And he said, what did he say? I must be about my father's business. I must be about my father's business. Now, on this day, on this very day at this wedding, the father's business has just begun. And I say just begun, his public ministry. It was actually a preview when he was a child at the age of 12. But here, it's initially just started. So, from here on, from this point on, Jesus is doing what? The Father's business. He's doing the Father's business. Mother's business has ended. This is the beginning of His public ministry, so there's a change in the relationship. There's a transition that's going on. So, there's something very important because... Right here, Jesus is engaging in ministry. He's engaging in His mission. He's engaging on what His purpose here is on this earth. He's in total and perfect submission to the Father's will. He says, I, everything that I do, I do to please my Father. My Father. My Father. You see this all the way through the rest of this book. Everything in His ministry is to do the Father's will because He's in submission to the Father's authority. So Mary had to recognize Him not so much as a son that she raised, but as the promised Messiah, the Son of God. Isn't that amazing? So right here, the transition goes almost like here she is the mother, then she goes to the, as a believer. Another example that is given to us from Scripture is Matthew chapter 12. Go with me very quickly to Matthew 12. At look look at verse look at verse forty six to fifty. Forty six to fifty. While he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with them. Then one said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. Well, we don't know the reason they wanted to speak to him, but they wanted to get to him. The crowds here at this point was escalating. His ministry was more popular. And yet in verse 48 he says, But he answered and said to the one who told him, with a question, notice what he says, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, Here are my mothers, here are, here are my mother." And my brothers. And then verse 50 he says, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and, my, and sister and mother. The relationships has changed. Those are part of the kingdom of God. To those who are born again of the Spirit of God, they are in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says that relationship, now we're part of the family of God. Jesus made that very crystal clear. So the only relationship he's basically saying here in effect, I have with you, Mary, is people who do my Father's will. People who do my Father's will. That's what our Lord is actually saying to Mary. And uh, what do we have in common now? What do we have in common? You, you have no role to play with me in my life. All the family connections are basically over with at this point. Notice this is 
opposed to what the Roman Catholic Church says? That Mary has any function, any role at all in His life? Actually, they worship. It's Mary worship. And I, and I said this earlier, it's like to get to Jesus, you've got to first go through Mary. There is nothing in Scripture to support that. And actually, they take these words here and take it out of context saying, well, yeah, Mary is our intercessor. Mary goes to Jesus for us. That is totally out of context. Totally out of context. Well, in Luke eleven twenty seven, here's one more illustration that Jesus dismisses that idea. Luke eleven twenty seven. Uh, I'm sorry, eleven twenty seven. Jesus was speaking, and one of the women in the crowd. We don't know who the woman is, but she raised her voice. The Bible says and said to Jesus, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. Isn't that interesting? Here's a woman that knew Mary and basically shouting to Jesus, says, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that you nursed. And Jesus responds to her, On the contrary, listen to what Jesus says, Blessed are those who Hear the Word of God and obey it. Isn't that wonderful? The relationship has changed. Jesus wasn't arguing with her. Jesus, being the truth Himself, she didn't know who Jesus really was. Well, that's an illustration. So Jesus completely distances Himself from Mary at this wedding. He's assumed a higher position. She has no role to play in the Father's business when it comes to Jesus' ministry and mission. So after Jesus gives her the question, He then actually gives her the answer. Don't you love this about the Lord? He gives her the answer. My hour has not yet come. Folks, this is so important. This one phrase is so critical into understanding Jesus' mission on this, in this earth, in this world. This is the very first time we see this very important statement by our Lord Jesus. But here, we don't have time to go to each of verses, but you could do this in your devotional time. You could see this as He repeats this time and time again and again and again. In chapter 7, He says it. In chapter 8, He says it. In chapter 12, in John's Gospel, He says it. Chapter 13, chapter 17... I just listed one, two, three, four, five chapters through the book of John in which Jesus says, My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. This phrase is actually speaks of the fullness and looks to the cross. His purpose, His mission. The hour of His death. The hour of His glorious resurrection. So what Jesus is saying is, his business is with the Father. He is absolutely obsessed with this. And by the way, he's looking at one direction. He's going to the cross to sacrifice himself, to die, and to become sin as the Lamb of God. As John the Baptist already said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what was the Father's will? The Father's will is to die. Now, let's not be too hard on Mary here. Because actually, she didn't have the revelation we have, right? 
So let's don't be too hard on her. She didn't understand. The disciples didn't understand. Peter didn't, did not even understand. He didn't get it that his mission was to die on a cross. They saw, yes, he's the Messiah. He's the king. Oh, he's going to usher in the kingdom of God. He's king and he's going to reign forever and ever. But to him to die on a cross? No way. They did not understand that. Folks, we see that because we have this revelation before us. She didn't see the revelation. She didn't have the revelation. But Jesus is unfolding it, isn't He? He reveals that revelation. We don't have anything in common, He's basically saying, because uh, I, I'm on a, a divine schedule of my Father. He's in control. He co- everything will culminate in my death, my burial, and my resurrection. Everything, everything that leads to that one mission. He was absolutely consumed with dying on that cross. Every event, every issue, every step, every circumstance to that one final hour, folks. To die and bleed on Calvary's cross. The cross is everything. Because He dies as our substitutionary sacrifice to take our sin. Isn't it wonderful? He basically saying to Mary, my hour, my death, my resurrection is all set by God. It's ordained by God. All those events that lead up to that are ordained and determined by God alone. So what does Mary do? She bows out. She submits. Look at verse 5. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Do it. She didn't argue with the Lord. She submits to Him. Something happened. And then He does what she asked. The point was made. And it just so happens that this is on God's sovereign timetable. There's much more to say about this wonderful wedding. But I'd like to bring this to a conclusion. Let me give you one more quote by Spurgeon here. This one by Spurgeon. Spurgeon said this, and I thought this is beautiful. Spurgeon says this about Mary. With all loving respect, he, speaking of Jesus, yet very decisively shuts out all interference from Mary. For his kingdom was to be according to the Spirit and not after the flesh. I delight in believing concerning the mother of Jesus that though she fell into a natural mistake, yet she did not for an instant persist in it. Neither did she hide it from John, but probably took care to tell it to him that no other should ever fall into the similar error by thinking of her in an unfitting manner. End quote. I thought that was very wonderful the way Spurgeon puts that. It was not repeated again from Mary. As I conclude, I would like to point out within these two verses in which we looked at about Mary, we see two Marys. 
so to speak. Don't we? We see Mary as the mother and we see Mary as the believer. Mary is the mother. Mary is the believer. In verse 3, Mary approaches Jesus as His mother. And we saw, and, and as we read in verse 5, she's reproached. She approaches Him in verse 3, then Jesus reproached her in verse 5. She responds as a believer, and her faith is honored. Isn't that beautiful? Her faith is honored. I think this is very encouraging. Jesus is not our errand boy. As so many people in Christian circles has made Jesus the errand boy. In other words, I can name it and claim it. And you give it to me in the name of Jesus because you said it right here in your word. Actually, years ago, I had a Pentecostal. He's a good friend of mine in South Georgia. Um, he, he was trying to point out from a scripture that he says on God's part, and, he, and this is another one of those verses in the Old Testament, totally took out of context and he said, you know, the Bible says you can command God. I said, you got to be kidding me. No, he told me. He, he, I, could, I, can't, I don't remember exactly where it's at, but it's in the Old Testament. He said, God says, command ye me. And at that point, I didn't know exactly how to answer him, so I went home and kind of did a little study. Um, he challenged me. Well, what, does the, what, what does the text, the context actually mean? Oh, yeah, he took it out of context. Totally. Now, people take verses out of context to try to justify... And going to God and commanding God Almighty to your beck and call? I said, you have got to be kidding. Well, anyway, God is not our... He's not um, our errand boy, is He? Jesus is it. He's Lord. We are His servants. And He wasn't Mary's errand boy either. He won't be for us. But if we come to Him by faith, we are rewarded. The Scripture says in Hebrews 11.6, He that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. So He does reward those who diligently seek Him. Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the author and the finisher of our, of our faith. So we look to Jesus, right? We don't look to Mary. So these two verses, as we looked at, as difficult as they are, help us to shape this account of Jesus' first miracle and to ensure that the focus is on Jesus. On His glory on His works, on His revelation, on who He is, and not Mary. The focus isn't on Mary. The focus is on Jesus. Even though there are people within the Catholic Church who will do everything, they, everything that they can and muster up within them to try to make the focus be Mary, but it's not Mary. It's not Mary. It's Jesus. Jesus and Jesus alone. 
So let us remember, we put our focus, we look unto Jesus, and God forbid we don't look to a mere created person like Mary. She needed a Savior just like us. Even though she bore the Son of God, she needed a Savior. So, let us ponder that and remember that we look unto Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father and our great God, we thank You for this uh, lesson today. There's much, much more here, Lord, and uh, the revelation that is all brought out to us in this wonderful chapter. Lord, we thank You how You revealed Yourself through Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and even attended weddings, a small wedding here in Canaan and Galilee, and where the beginning of signs Jesus did here manifested His glory and His disciples believed in Him. Lord, that's what we're to do. The example Mary gave was to believe. To believe. Not to worship her. God forbid. But to worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. She, even being the mother of Jesus, understood that Jesus was her Savior and Lord. And she submitted to His Word. And Father, help us to understand, as Mary understood, by faith, by faith, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, of who Jesus was, the Messiah, and pointed others away from herself and pointed them to Jesus. Help us, O God, by faith, to look unto Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith, in everyday living, in our homes, in our workplaces, as we go about and leave this place. O oh Lord, a living faith, not a dead faith. A living faith, because we serve a living God and a risen Christ. We thank You for this, and we praise You for this. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.